Reverend Dr. Anna Robbins is the president of Acadia Divinity College. She wears several hats there. And yesterday I gave the big, long official introduction. I won't do that today. But uh, she spent a lot of time in the UK. She grew up in St. John and has spent a lot of time in the UK and is back now. And uh, I believe Acadia Divinity College is in very, very good hands with Anna Robbins. She's the first female president of Acadia Divinity College, which is a big deal, too. Um, and I said yesterday, and I'll say it again, I, my, my life first intertwined with Anna's when I was, I think, six years old, and she was my Sunday school teacher. I, was, I grew up at Aylesford Baptist Church, and uh, Anna was doing her practical ministry, whatever it's called, uh, while she was a student at Acadia, and, uh, at, at Aylesford, and she taught me Sunday school. And then um, in June... I was able to reconnect with her all these years later on the trip to Israel, and it was a real joy to get to know her, and um, really blessed to welcome you to the, I won't say pulpit, but the music stand of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Thank you. I'm grateful for the music stand. Thanks, Michael. Um, I'm glad I didn't ruin you. I mean, you know... You know what it's like when you're a student, you're trying stuff out. <laughs> so I'm very grateful. Um, those were good times. We stayed on after our SFE at Aylesford for a couple extra years, and we're youth pastors there, and that was where we cut our eye teeth in ministry. And um, really grateful for that opportunity, and it's been an absolute delight to reconnect with, with you, Michael. And, um, and also to be here, to connect with you, because we have a long partnership with this church at ADC, which I'm very aware of and very grateful for. So thank you always for your loving welcome in Christ. We had a good time yesterday. Um, uh, the, the introduction yesterday, we did laugh a little bit about it because it was, it, it, it's what's on the website, I know, um, but it's kind of long. <laughs> it makes me feel really old. Um, and, um, and some people have said, you know, so how did you do all that? I said, look, the only way I can do anything is that my son keeps it real for me. So I had a son when I was old and he's 11 now. And so he keeps it really real for me all the time. And I can't get away with anything. I can't go around and be the Ponzi president or anything like that because, you know, he brings me down to size. Um, and he, he's always saying quite funny things, you know, that I'm sitting in his chair or that kind of thing. Um, but the funniest things are always the unexpected ones. And he came home from school one day and said, um, my friends are telling me I need to wear jeans. He's never worn jeans. He hates them. And he said, but my friends are telling me I need to wear jeans. I said, why are they telling you you need to wear jeans? He said, well, because they're cool. And he said, but I told them I don't wear clothes to be cool. I wear clothes because it's the law. And knowing him, that's absolutely true. <laughs> but the great thing about humor is that it's so funny because the ending is unexpected. Isn't that right? Unexpected. And I've been working with this whole theme about the unexpected Jesus for quite a while now uh, because I'm working on a devotional book for... Um, for Advent next year, of all things. And, and so I've been really working with this theme about the unexpected Jesus. And I've been absolutely shocked to see how much of what Jesus does in Scripture, almost all of it, is almost entirely unexpected by the people he encounters. And, and it's an amazing thing. 
When we think about expectations, I mean, have you ever received a really large package in the mail and you open it with excitement um, only to discover that there's another box inside and then you open that and there's another box inside and, and there's just simply too much packaging for the little tiny thing that this big box contained. You were expecting a big surprise, but you ended up being disappointed with something that was less than what you had hoped for. But not as expected often means that the reality turns out to be less than what you hoped for. Not expected. Maybe you ordered a cake or organized an event, bought an item only to be disappointed by what it looked like. If you've ever done, you know, sort of a personal nailed it. Maybe ended up disappointed when you saw the cake that was supposed to look like something else. Uh, look like not what you expected. Uh, maybe life is not quite what you expected. You had big dreams, big hopes, and this is what you've got, whatever that happens to be. Or maybe you've gone to an event, or you'd rather be at home in bed with a book, but you went, and it turned out to be the most exciting night of your life. Sometimes not as expected can be wonderful. It doesn't have to be a letdown. And although the arrival of a Messiah was expected by some, Jesus was not what they were expecting. For the Pharisees, he was a complete disappointment. And they spent all of their time trying to discredit him and get rid of him. But for many others, the encounter that they had with Jesus carried the potential of total and unexpected transformation. So the first uh, encounter... That, well, the, the encounter I want us to look at today is found in the book of Luke. And it's based on the Sea of Galilee, which in my translation says the Lake of Gennesaret. We're going to look at Luke chapter 5. Um, and <laughs> now the first time I was ever on the Sea of Galilee, we were there again last summer. First time I was ever on the Sea of Galilee, we went out in this boat. And, you know, you've seen the setup. Even if you haven't been there, you've seen this sort of thing where you go out on the boat and you have communion in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And it's supposed to be this really meaningful experience. You can imagine it, right? This peaceful time in a boat and you're having communion in the place where Jesus walked and all of that. And so we were out in this boat and... Um, it happened to be the Festival of Weeks in Tiberias, which sounds really exotic, but what it meant was a big party, a big modern party. And, um, and so we were out in this boat, and we were getting buzzed by the sea dews, right? Zoom, zoom. And, and people in bikinis on the sea dews, zoom. So, you know, we're, and Jesus went out into the boat, zoom, you know, and this... <laughs> And um, it, it seemed, things seemed to settle a little bit. We were getting a little bit less traffic. And so um, my colleague, Glenn Wooden, he, he was trying to, he was reading the scripture. Very, and he seemed oblivious. I don't know. I, I'm an extrovert, so I notice everything, right? And, and just about the time that we were about to start communion, I heard a song just wafting out across the water from Tiberius. And sorry, <laughs> but this is absolute truth. This is what happened. It was Tom Jones singing Sex Bomb. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I kid you not. We had such a better time this summer than that. And, and so everyone's seriously, you know, at their communion. And all I can hear is, sex bomb, sex bomb. <laughs> and I just started to laugh. And, um, and, I, and, and the thought came to me that if Jesus were there at that moment, he'd be at the party in Tiberias, I bet, talking to the people about their expectations of life. And um, so we come to this passage then um, about expectations. 
And uh, this encounter, we have to wind back from my experience on the Sea of Galilee, back 2,000 years, um, to a much more primitive and undeveloped community. In clusters of small stone houses where people lived, um, eking out an existence from the sea. And despite their contemporary reputation for being lowly and uneducated, by comparison to today they were, but these uh, fishermen were actually some of the wealthiest businessmen in the area. They were, this was what they did for generations. This was their thing. This was their business. It provided income for their families, probably for generations. They didn't know anything else. They knew nothing else other than, here's my boat, let's go fishing. And on this day, here comes a man who changes everything. Not only in that day, but in a moment. Luke chapter 5. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put it out a little way from the shore, And then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long and have caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching people. And when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Now, how many of you have heard a sermon on this passage before? Be honest. How many of you? Be honest. You don't have to raise your hand for this one, but in your own heart, be honest with this. How many of you thought, not that one again? (laughs) Right? right? We hear those ones, you're like, oh, okay, I know what she's doing with this. I know where she's going with this. Oh, I'll have a little moment to sleep. No, can't do that. Can't do that. Uh, Because I think something unexpected might happen. I mean, I've heard this preached dozens of times in my life, this passage. And still when I've studied it recently, I've been blown away by it. And I want to share that with you, what has struck me from this passage as I've been studying it. And uh, when, we, when we come here and we read these verses, we see, you know, Peter, he knew what he was doing, Simon Peter. This was his business, right? He'd been doing this for his, all of his life. He'd been doing this for generations. And, um, and so here he comes out of the water. They've been fishing all night and have caught nothing. This has probably happened before, but this is their business. It's their life. They know what to expect. And so he's sitting up on the shore cleaning his nets, and along comes this local prophet, Jesus, with a gaggle of people following along asks if he can use his boat. Peter's probably thinking, yeah, why not? Give me some entertainment while I clean out my nets, right? And so Jesus pushes out the boat from shore and begins to teach. 
The interesting thing is we don't really hear what he was teaching from the boat, not in this passage at least, just that he was teaching. And when he finished teaching, he says, as you well know, he says to Simon, Peter, um, come on out and let down your nets again. Right? You know this very well. I'm sure many of you do. And if you don't, then it's doubly exciting. Um, because he says, come and let down your nets. And you can, you can hear almost the sigh in his voice, right? I'm calling, his name is Simon in the passage, but we know him as Simon Peter because that was what he was when he was called by Jesus. Uh, same guy, in case you were wondering. Uh, so he did his teaching, and then he says, come on. Put out your water in the deep, come out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And we hear Simon Peter answer, Master, we've worked all night long and caught nothing. Like, come on now. We know what we're doing. We know our business. This is a business we know about. We've fished all night long and nothing. And now you want me to come out again? And we can imagine, we can, we can imagine what it's like because we experience this very much in our culture today. And this isn't just what some people out there experience. I think we all experience it. The meh culture. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say meh? Like, oh, everything's an effort, isn't it? I mean, it's an effort sometimes to get up on a Sunday morning and go to church. Let's be honest. I'm not, I understand that. Meh. And, and, and if you're feeling meh, it's not just, it's not just you. I want you to know that today. It's probably all of us to some degree because we live in a culture that has seen so much and done so much and everything's right here in front of us all the time that what happens? As a human being, we can't be interested in all that stuff all the time. And what do we do? We switch off and everything becomes meh. And so Jesus loves me. I know that. Yeah, so, right? It all becomes a bit meh. When the best news in the world should be life transforming, we're a bit meh. And here's Jesus encountering Simon Peter saying, Come on out and put your nets down again. Rah, rah, rah. And Peter's saying, Meh, meh. You know, and there's, in, in the history of the church, there's this term called acedia. They talk about it more in Catholic churches than in Protestant churches. It's one of the seven deadly sins. And it's often referred to as sloth. But slothfulness is not really a good description for it. Because as the early uh, desert church fathers described it, they said it was much more like the noonday devil. Do you know what the noonday devil is? Let me describe it to you. It's a noonday devil named from uh, Psalm 91. And this is how one of the church fathers, Evagrius, described it. Think about a, a long day doing whatever it is that you do. Do you know what those long days are like? All right. So this is what they wrote. And this is like way back. We're talking first and second centuries. They're talking about this. So the demon of Acedia, it's called the noonday demon, is the most oppressive of all the demons. He attacks the monk. These are all the monks working in the desert, you know, doing copying. Attacks the monk at about the fourth hour, which is 10 o'clock, and besieges his soul until 2. 10 till 2. This is the hardest part of the day. Is that the hardest part of your day? Maybe, maybe not. The after lunch slot when you're a teacher, that's a hard part. That's, that's difficult. Um, first of all, he makes it appear as if the sun moves slowly or not at all, so the day seems to be 50 hours long. Sound familiar? 
Then he compels the monk to look constantly towards the windows, to jump out of his cell, to watch the sun, to see how far away it is from the from 3 p.m. because that's when they get together again. The monks join together again. He's basically he's been given a job to do and he's bored. Meh. Right? And the and the clock does not seem to move. Do you remember those days in school? The big hands on the clock and he'd like will it to move. This is what he's talking about. And so then what happens is um, he gets the idea that maybe another monk will come and distract him. Make, make, put a little bit of excitement into his day, right? This is a good idea. Maybe somebody will come and distract me from what I'm going to do. Distraction? Sound familiar? Maybe I'll just pull out my phone. You know, and just a little bit of time on Facebook. And I'm not dissing social media. I get it. I, you know, I'm on it. <laughs> but, but we do use it as a distraction from the things we know we're supposed to be doing a lot of the time. So there's the, let's, how about if I got distracted? But then nobody comes to distract him. So then what happens? It instills him in a, a dislike for the place and for the state of life itself and for his work. So that the idea of love has disappeared from the brothers and there's no one there to console him. So in other words, he's saying, none of those people from church have bothered to call me when I'm bored. Bunch of hypocrites. And then it starts to creep in. Oh, well, we don't really love each other anyway then. Right? And so what kind of place is that? Maybe, maybe I need to start looking somewhere else. Causes this distress. This discomfort. Um, and, then, uh, and then if there's someone who has offended the monk, this too the demon uses to add further t- to dislike of the place. And oh yeah, and then there's that, you know, those people over there. They're, they make it even worse, don't they? And so what, what happens then? The monk is not focused on what he's been given to do. It's distracted, 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 and ends up in this place really of... Meh. It's all just a mess and I don't care. And this is fascinating because what, what those church fathers tell us is that the remedy for this is, you're going to love this, what do you think the remedy is? What was that? It's perse- perseverance. Right? <laughs> that wasn't their idea, but <laughs> maybe that's why they wanted 3 p.m. to come, so they could dine together. Um, now, here's, here's the response. Perseverance. Well, that's exciting, isn't it? Really? Perseverance? Is that what you're telling me is the response to this whole culture of meh, where I don't care and I can't be bothered to do it anymore? Perseverance? But isn't that a very scriptural response? Because what they said is when we, ha- when we stand fast and have stability in our own place and remember God's faithfulness to us before, when we persevere in that, they say eventually, and we can't say when, it might come in an unexpected way, we will have a joy of heart, an ineffable joy restored to us. Let down the nets one more time. How many times have you heard that preached? Because I have. So persevere. Go out one more time. If this is your time, this is it. Go out and let those nets down one more time. I'll bet most of you are saying, meh. Right? And even if you're saying, yes, let's do it. 
then probably by tomorrow you might be, well, meh. <laughs> we all live this life together in culture. It's really tough, isn't it? It's great to see how, how our lives are still retold in scripture. We've worked all night long and caught nothing. He perseveres, though, because you say so. Because you say so, I'll do it. And then we reach the pinnacle of the story, which is not really about Peter's faithfulness and letting down the nets one more time. The, the, the point here is that when he lets the nets down, he gets to experience the miracle, right? The miracle. It's not what he does that's highlighted here. It's what Jesus does in terms of filling the nets to overflowing. And you're thinking, okay, let down the nets. They'll be overflowing. Yeah, 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 we know. We've seen that before. God is good and Jesus is amazing. I don't know if we understand how amazing sometimes, but these guys understood how amazing. Because they had so many fish that sunk two boats, he knew Jesus was not just another prophet. His worldview shifted that day. And we know that because he looked at Jesus, he fell down at his knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He can see that Jesus is not an ordinary person. And something big is going on in his midst. Sometimes sermons end there. I don't think we've really reached the pinnacle of the story still. Let's read right through to the end of that section. Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Everybody was amazed because they can see that Jesus is not some kind of regular prophet, whatever that is, but Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. He's retranslating Peter's whole life, his identity and his existence. And what happens? When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. I've been hearing that passage probably since I was four or five years old. So that's nice. It's the calling of the first disciple. That's good. Well done, Peter. I don't know if we really understand the, how profound this statement is. And I was alerted to this passage, or the connection with this passage, potentially, by my colleague, Stuart, who was with us yesterday. And he drew my attention to a story that was written by Alistair MacLeod from Cape Breton. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And there's a story that he wrote in the 1960s called The Boat. The Boat. And I first became conscious, he says, of the boat in the same way at almost the same time that I became aware of the people it supported. He tells the story of how the boat in his family was their identity. It was their existence. The boat was everything. When we read this and say they brought their boats to shore and left everything and followed him, we're not talking about a tricycle. They left their boats. Their boats. Many generations of commitment. Many generations of supplying the needs of their families. 
Again, Alistair MacLeod. When I was very small, my father took me for my first ride in the boat. I rode the half mile from our house to the wharf on his shoulders, and I remember the sound of his rubber boots galloping along the gravel beach, the tune of the indecent little song he used to sing, and the odor of the salt. The floor of the boat was permeated with the same odor, and in its constancy, I was not aware of change. In the harbor, we made our little circle and returned. He tied the boat by its painter, fastened the stern to its permanent anchor and lifted me high over his head to the solidity of the wharf. Then he climbed up the little iron ladder that led to the wharf's cap, placed me once more on his shoulders and galloped off again. And when we returned to the house, everyone made a great fuss over my precocious excursion and asked, how did you like the boat? Were you afraid in the boat? Did you cry in the boat? Everyone repeated the boat at the end of all questions, and I knew it must be very important to everyone. My earliest recollection of my mother is of being alone with her in the mornings while my father was away in the boat. She seemed to be always repairing clothes that were torn in the boat, preparing food to be eaten in the boat, or looking for the boat through our kitchen window, which faced the sea. When my father returned about noon, she would ask, well, how did things go in the boat today? It was the first question I remember asking, well, how did things go? in the boat today. How did things go in the boat today? After he was, took some time off to work on the boat, his father tried to convince him to return to school. And he says, the next morning I did return to school. And as I left, my mother followed me to the porch and said, I never thought a son of mine would choose useless books over the parents who gave him life. The boat was everything. The boat was their identity. The boat is who they were. When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. They left their boats. They left their boats. Nobody expected that. They left their boats. Now those of us who are Christians, we know our identity is in Christ. And yet our identity relies on so many other things. And the world tells us we should know who we are because of our sexuality or we should know who we are uh, because of um, how we feel in our brains or we should know who we, we know who we are because of the things we're connected to, because of the people we're related to, because of the things that are important in our lives that have shaped us and made us who we are. That's our identity. But do you see what's happening here? Whatever that is that we think is our identity when we come to Christ, you leave the boat. You leave the boat. And it's a sad and a hard thing in some ways. You know, imagine their families. I never thought anyone would leave our family. What, who's going to feed us now? You've walked off to follow him. What about the boat, Peter? They left the boats. And they followed him. I think all of us have a boat at most times in our lives. The things we want to cling on to and the things that we identify with, that we think build our identity. And sometimes, and a lot of the times, Jesus says to us, leave your boat. <laughs> Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Everyone has a different boat. When I was invited to be the president of the college, I had to realize I had a boat too. And I thought, no, I'm all sold out for Jesus. Rah, rah, rah. 
And some people might say, what a great thing to be the president of a divinity college. It's not all that great every day, I have to tell you. <laughs> um, and, and I realized that my boat that I was being asked to give up was um, academics. I had spent a lot of my life earning a lot of degrees, not to impress people. I was following the Lord with that. I hope that the Lord will always use my brain because he gave it to me. So that's important. But, um, you know, there's a lot of books in, in here. There's a lot of things I'd like to do. But I realized that if I'm going to step into this role, I can't do that. It was a huge wrestling, actually. Will I do this or will I do that? Because I can't right now do both. And I had to realize this was my boat it was my boat. And I kept thinking, well, can I not drag my boat along with me? Can you imagine Peter if he put that rope over his shoulder and just dragged his boat along with Jesus down to Jerusalem and back up to Judea? We do that, though, don't we? We drag that boat around. And I could have dragged the boat around, and I knew that God was saying I had to let go of that boat. I had to leave it. And I had to follow Jesus into what he had for me next. What would it take for you to leave the meh? of what Christian life sometimes looks like and to truly follow Jesus. What's, what's your boat? What's your boat today? Maybe you've been dragging it around too long. It's time to let it go. Because Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's, it's a comfort blanket for us. It's, it's our identity. It's how we know ourselves. But he says, don't be afraid. Leave your boat. Come and follow me. We're going fishing for people. We're going fishing for people. Leave your boat. Let's go. Amen. That was awesome. Um, thank you, Anna. I'm going to pray for you before you go, um, before we wrap up. But I just wanted to say, you know, it's amazing. That, that was actually going to be my text for next Sunday. Um, no, no word of a lie. Um, next Sunday, I'm starting a new sermon series on the life of, of Peter. Um, and... Uh, and his ministry through through the Gospels and in and Acts, and uh, I was going to start right there with Peter's call. So you've started the sermon series for me. So thank you. So I'll go to the second part of it next Sunday. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Wow. So good. And that theme of the boat is actually going to come back in the life of Peter, isn't it? In a couple different places. So we'll see that thread coming through. Um, Anna, can you please just come back up as I as I pray for you? Um, had the privilege of praying with a group of other pastors uh, with Anna um, in Israel uh, uh, at the Garden Tomb just before she began her ministry officially at her, her, title, her new role at Acadia. And so let's just pray for her again now as she continues that role. Father God, we thank you so much for the, the joy of having Anna here today and John and for yesterday. Lord, we thank you for our school we thank you for Acadia Divinity College, the many, many years that uh, they have faithfully there been uh, equipping and training the future uh, leaders of our church. 
And we, we thank you, God, for their faithful witness. May it continue. And we pray for Anna as she leads. God, give her wisdom. Give her strength. Give her endurance. We pray that she would continue to pursue you wherever that leads. Uh, and, and maybe there's other boats along the way that she's going to have to leave behind. We just pray, God, that you would give her the courage that she needs to follow you wherever you take her. And God, we pray the same for all of us. Lord God, you have called us in this place to a great mission. Lord, our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to help people encounter and follow Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to, to see the way forward, uh, to, to rise above the mundane existence of life, and, and to um, perceive and, and pursue the high calling of Jesus Christ. So we thank you so much for that, and I pray today that you would go with all of us by your Spirit. Give us the strength we need, the courage and the boldness we need to live for Jesus in this difficult world that we live in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Yeah, bless you too. God bless you folks. That's it. You have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.